Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. Revelation chapter 10, uh, just to give us a little bit of the timeline of where we're at in these 22 chapters of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10 is placed somewhere about in the middle of that seven-year tribulation period in the chronological order that we see. Uh, Remember that uh, the timeline uh, for this seven-year tribulation period, that it begins with a covenant that the Antichrist is going to make with the nation of Israel. That's really what's going to start this seven-year period or this timetable will begin. We read that in the book of Daniel in 927. We also know that in the middle of the tribulation period that the Antichrist is going to break that covenant with Israel. Uh, He's going to go and tell the Jews that uh, he wants them to worship him and not their own worship in their temple. And he's going to demand that they worship him as God. And we know at that point that the Jews are going to realize that they've been deceived, that this man that they were looking to as really a messiah because he had allowed them to rebuild their temple and to go back to their form of sacrifice, this man now was a deceiver. And really, he's going to go out to try and destroy Israel. We know that this happens in the middle of the tribulation period at that three-and-a-half-year mark. Now, also remember that according to Daniel chapter 2 and also Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we read there, that there were, that there throughout history there has been four Gentile nations that were going to rise and fall. And that last uh, empire was going to be the Roman Empire. Now, we know that Daniel went on to... uh, to see in his vision that there was going to be another empire that was going to rise. Now, that empire is not going to rise until the tribulation period. It's going to be a revived Roman empire. And that was the part of Daniel, the image where he saw the feet of of iron and clay. And it's going to be that Roman empire revived. Now, as we look at our current world situation. You see a lot going on in our news about the G20 and the G12. We're going to call this the G10 because there is going to come a point at which there is going to be this confederacy of 10 nations. These 10 nations, and if you watch your news today, you can see how that can come about. 10 nations, a revived Roman Empire that is going to culminate during the tribulation period, and we're not going to be here. The church will not be here, but those that are here uh, on this earth during that time are going to see the full 10 nations coming together under the Antichrist. We'll read about that more detail when we get to Revelation chapter 13. Now, I have some slides. It might be this first slide here, if we can hit. You see Ezekiel 38. We have the alliance of nations is gathered. And we talked about that. All the nations that that are going to come together, Russia being the lead, and all of these other Islamic nations that are going to be coming alongside Russia that are going to be coming down on the nation of Israel. You see the intentions of Israel. We see the premeditated evil plan that our enemy, our adversary, the devil, is really going to give really to uh, that leader of Russia that is going to come down upon Israel. We see in that chapter the invasion of Israel's enemies from the far north. And then God's judgment against Israel's enemy. Now, 
I believe that this particular battle that is referred to as the battle of Gog and Magog is going to happen before, I believe, the tribulation period begins. What we don't know is, is is this battle going to happen before or after the rapture? Now remember that when the rapture takes place, the church is going to be removed from this earth. And it doesn't mean that the tribulation period starts the next day or at that moment. There could be a period of time, and it's possible that in this length of time, which I don't believe will be a long period, but there will be a period of time, it's possible that this battle of Gog and Magog could happen during this time. Now, as you're watching in the news, most of us, I'm sure, about what's going on now in our world with Russia, Uh, Crimea, Crimea, I always have a hard time saying that word, Crimea, uh, and the Ukraine, or what's going on in, in those places right now. And I'm f- trying to follow this because it's very interesting to watch how our government has been kind of lulled to sleep. And we thought that the Cold War was over. We thought this was really, we were done having this these superpowers battling between the two. I don't think that most Christians really, when they read their Bibles, ever believed that, but that's really where our government was going with it. But we're seeing, and what I think is interesting about this, is we're seeing the sleeping bear, Russia, so to speak, beginning to rise its head. And we're beginning to see how this country really wants, or this nation really wants, world dominance again. And I believe under Putin... And what we see even happening in this small, insignificant place, but for Russia, it's very strategic. It's in that particular area where the uh, Russian fleet, the Navy, is housed there in the Black Sea. And it's very strategic for Russia, and Putin knows it, and Putin is going to do what he has. Everything that I'm hearing and probably what you've heard is that they already have it. It's already a done deal. The United States is not going to be able to go in there and really reverse this, and I don't believe the European Union or anyone else is probably going to stop Putin. The question is, how far is he going to go from here? And that remains to be seen. But what I think is interesting about what we're seeing here is that we can see how Russia, in this battle of Gog and Magog, how that's all going to come about. Remember, the location of that and where uh, Russia is to the north, it's all of these countries around there that are going to come down upon the nation of Israel. Let's start chapter 10, verse 1. I, John saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. This is another one of those sections in the book of Revelation where people have uh, had some differences of opinions. Uh, the opinion has to do, and where people have differed, is who is the identity, who's the identity of this mighty angel? Now, there are some that believe and teach, and these are good men of God, people that uh, study prophecy and, and really know their stuff. There are some that believe that what we're talking about here is a picture, this mighty angel is Christ, a picture of Christ, or it is Christ, excuse me, himself. There are others that believe that this is just another mighty angel. Now, I looked up how many times the word angel is used in the book of Revelation, 75 times throughout the book of Revelation, either angel or angels, plural. And so it is throughout, God has chosen to use angels to do his work during the tribulation uh, time in, in, in numerous ways. One of the other things that we don't see about angels is we don't see Jesus ever being referred to as an angel. Don't ever let a seven-day Adventist tell you that Jesus is Michael the archangel as they believe. But in book of Revelation, I believe primarily that what we're seeing here is angels are angels. I don't believe it's a type really, or a picture of Christ here. But let's go on and I'll give you some other reasons for it. He says that I saw 
still another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, I think it's interesting that what John is seeing here is this mighty angel that is descending from heaven, which another reason why I don't think this is Christ is because there's no other place in the book of Revelation until Jesus comes back at the battle of Armageddon that he comes down to earth. Well, here John is seeing this angel called a mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, the word another in your Bible, look at verse 1. It uses the word another mighty angel. That word another is a Greek word that means another of the same kind. Now, I believe that this really could be referring us back to chapter 5, if you want to flip back there. Chapter 5, verse 2. This is how it reads. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? Now, in this particular part of John's vision, he refers to it, as a strong angel. Now, what's interesting is that the word strong and the word mighty in the Greek are the same Greek word. And so we could insert another strong angel here in chapter 10. In chapter 8 of Revelation, in verse 2, John saw this. And these are just some examples of these other angels that are, are listed here. He says, And I saw seven angels who stand before God, And to them were given seven trumpets. And remember, we've already covered that. And so it's believed that these seven angels that stand there with God at his throne uh, are another set of angels that God is using. But then it goes on to say, then another angel having a golden censer. Remember when we read that? He came and he stood at the altar and was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. In Revelation 18.1, we read this, and we haven't got there yet, but this is how it reads. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And so we see even in this vision that John sees this other angel coming down with great authority and he's illuminated with glory. Here's This is why people have gotten 10-1 confused. Are we talking about Jesus here or just a mighty angel? Because of some of the things that are said about the description of this angel. But we do see in chapter 18 this angel coming down that which is obviously not Jesus Christ himself, but a mighty angel of God that God was using. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, John saw this. He says, Then I saw an angel again coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. These, I believe, are specific angels. And then other multiple angels like the seven that God is using for his purposes. They're messengers of God. I have, in looking at everything that I've looked at, this is where I'm at with this. I don't believe that it's speaking about Jesus Christ here. But I believe, and it's very possible that what is being referred to here is Michael the archangel. Now, Michael the archangel is, if you want to say, one of the highest ranking angels in heaven today. Uh, He is the one that really is the protector of Israel. He's the one that God, I believe, has used for some specific things. I believe that he is a, uh, if, if there is rankings of angels in heaven, and he would be at that top of that list. It's interesting about Michael, the archangel, and his name, that in the Hebrew, his name means who is like God. And so when we're getting into 10.1 here and seeing this description, then it's not so far removed to think that here's Michael the archangel being described in this fashion. Look at, um, if you want, you can turn there, I'm going to read, but Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, This, I believe, gives us another picture of Michael the archangel uh, in relationship to Revelation 10.1. Daniel 12, 1 says, At that time, 
Michael shall stand up, referring to Michael the archangel, the great prince he's referred to here, who stands watch over the sons of your people, referring to Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is, who is found written in the book. Daniel chapter 12, remember, is Daniel's vision of the end times events. We're talking about the period in the tribulation period here in Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, 6, it goes on to read this way. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Asking a question. Then I heard a man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half time, and when the powers of the holy people, and listen to this, have been completely shattered. Who are the holy people? He's talking about the nation of Israel. When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all of these things shall be finished. What is God doing? God is doing a work in the nation of Israel. God has a specific plan and purpose for his people. But here we have a picture here of Michael the archangel. In Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 7, we're also going to see that there's going to be a war that's going to break out in heaven. We haven't got there yet, but when we get there, this war breaks out, and it, and it tells us that Michael and his angels, so Michael has angels, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, so Satan has his demonic forces, Michael and his angels, and there's this battle that is going to erupt in heaven. And it says, but they did not prevail. Satan and his army didn't prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In Jude 1.9 we read that it was Michael the archangel who contended with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. Remember that? It was Michael the archangel that God sent, this strong, mighty angel. And it says that even Michael the archangel, when he came up against Satan, he didn't even come making any uh, reviling accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuked you. That shows you even the respect that Michael the archangel had towards Satan himself. And he came in the name of the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. But here we have, I believe, a picture. And let's look at some of the descriptions that we see of this mighty angel in 10, starting in 10.1. It says that he was clothed with a cloud. Now, these descriptions are why some people believe that what we're talking about here is Jesus Christ. Clouds in the Bible, in the scriptures, can speak of two things. They can speak of intervention, and they can also speak of judgment. And I have some scriptures to support that. The two witnesses uh, in Revelation chapter 11 verse 12. It says, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. And we're going to see that next week when we get into that there's going to be, they're going to be received up into a cloud. When Jesus Christ ascended up from the Mount of Olives, he ascended up until the clouds received him out of their sight. At the rapture of the church, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we know that the church is going to be caught up together to meet uh, those uh, that have already perished, that we're going to meet in the clouds in the air. And so clouds in Scripture can have that, that, uh, that picture uh, really of intervention, of God intervening. But it can also speak of judgment. In the book of Exodus, chapter 24... 
We know when Moses came uh, to Mount Sinai there, uh, and he went up to the mountain, that we're told that a cloud covered the mountain. And now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud... The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and he went up into the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And so we see really also the cloud as being really a picture of judgment also even on Mount Sinai there. And there's actually a whole lot of other places that you can find in Scripture in regards to clouds. We also see that this mighty angel is described as having a rainbow was on his head. Now, we know that in chapter 4 of Revelation, we saw this rainbow that was encircling the throne. Remember that, the heavenly vision? And we talked about that, that there was a rainbow that, was, that John saw around the throne. Well, the rainbow or this colored halo that John is seeing around this mighty angel's uh, head really, I believe, is speaking of, just like it did in chapter 4, it's speaking really of the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness to his promises and the covenants that he made. When did God show the rainbow? He said, I'll never destroy this earth by flood again. He made a covenant that he would never do that again and destroy this earth by flood. And so think of those three sets of judgments that are coming down upon this earth. God is going to fulfill his promises and his covenants to his people. And I believe that these are all pictures, really, that speak of something spiritual and truth. This colored halo or this rainbow that was on his head. We read, though, in Revelation uh, 4, 3, that this rainbow was around the throne. And that's why some people think, maybe we're talking about Jesus Christ here. We're also told that his face was like the sun, which shows the divine glory and really the holiness, really, of this mighty angel that John is seeing in this vision, this this holiness of God. Remember uh, the story of Moses... uh, in Exodus 34, when uh, Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had the two tablets of the testimony of God in his hands. And it says that when he came down to the people, Moses, it says that, that, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face, that it shone while he talked with him. And so when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And so here, I believe, even John is seeing this mighty angel that has this radiance coming from his face. In Revelation 1.16, when John saw that vision of Christ, it said that his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And so some people have said, are we talking about the mighty angel in Jesus Christ here? I still think that this is Michael the archangel that is shining forth the glory and the holiness of God as he is coming forth, showing really God's holiness. In the description also, we see that his feet, this mighty angel's feet, were like pillars of fire. Now, fire is always speaks about judgment. And really, that's what this angel is coming forth in this pronouncement to do. He's bringing forth really the judgment or really that seventh trumpet that is going to be sounded. But when you think of pillars, what do you think about? Pillars speak of something that is firm, something that is stable. Here, this angel's feet are like pillars of fire, that they're immovable. Uh, they're, they're, uh, but, it, but it also speaks of this fire that, that really, I think, speaks of this outpouring of the judgments that are coming forth. We read in Revelation 1.15 in the description of Jesus Christ that his feet were like fine brass, as if they were refined in a furnace. 
And so, again, these are the reasons why some have it. You can make your own decision. There's good men of God on both sides. I lean towards, we're looking at another angel, Michael the archangel, probably. Verse 2. And he had a little book. Some translations read a scroll. But he had a little book opened in his hand. This is this mighty angel. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. We're told that uh, this angel had a little book in his hand. Now, it almost reminds us of the scroll, doesn't it? Back in chapter 5 that we covered. Uh, This scroll, though, was really different, wasn't it? Because the scroll, we're told, was written on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. This book was opened already in this angel's hands. I, I believe that the characteristics of this little book, it's specifically called a little book, and the scroll that we read of in chapter 5, that there's different characteristics, and I don't think we're talking about the same. But we do see this angel having this book in his hand, and then he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. We're told that this messenger, uh, really, I, I believe in John's vision, was seeing really this angel showing his authority for what was about to take place. This authority, or if you want to say, his right to the possession of this earth. Putting one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, showed the authority that he possessed. Here's Michael the architect, one on each, showing the authority over the earthly situation, what was going on on this earth, that God was in control, that God had the authority to do what he was about to do. John was given this image, I believe, also to show that all things are under God's feet. All things are in his control. He's sovereign. He's in control. Even when it comes to God's plan and God's judgments that are being unleashed. This... uh, vision that John saw here I believe was really he literally saw this with his eyes he saw this vision that God was given him but there's really something else I think that is probably uh, some symbolism in what we're seeing here with this foot on the sea and this foot on the land because in throughout the book of Revelation we are also going to see when we get to Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 that the sea represents the Gentile nations. And we'll see that in context in those chapters. And then the land represents the Jewish nation, uh, that they are the stewards of the promised land and the land that God had given them. And so really one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, might also have reference to the the nation of Israel and also to the Gentile nations. John then sees this mighty angel beginning to cry out. Look at verse 3. He cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars when he cried out. Seven thunders uttered their voices. In Revelation chapter 7, we read, John said, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on their forehead. Uh, So again, we see this other angel crying out with a loud voice. I, I, I I couldn't even imagine what that sounded in the ear of John hearing this mighty angel just proclaiming, and he's, he's likening it to like a lion roaring, a loud voice. And when this angel cries out, John then hears seven thunders uttering their voices. In the book of Psalm, uh, Psalm 29, verse 3, we read about really the voice of God. 
listen to how it reads about this loud voice or this voice like the roar of a lion. It says in Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Sharon like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the force bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. That's pretty powerful. The voice of the Lord. And here's this angel proclaiming with a loud voice, like the voice, uh, like the roar of a lion. And then he hears these seven thunders coming forth. Jeremiah the prophet prophesied that Israel was going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians for a 70-year period of time. And Jeremiah spoke forth the judgment of God among all the nations to whom the Lord had sent him. In Jeremiah 25, verse 27, we read, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more, because the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should... And should you be utterly unpunished? You should not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore prophesy against them all these words, Jeremiah, and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and the utter of his voice from the holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. When God is dealing with the nation of Israel here, In the book of Revelation, all of this, remember that the primary focus of what God is doing here over the seven-year tribulation period is that God is going to be faithful to a remnant of his people. God is doing something here in a a very specific and thought-out and planned way that with the nation of Israel, that there will be a remnant of Israel that will be saved, and there will be Gentiles saved also. Joel, speaking of the coming day, of the Lord prophesied, he said, Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And then listen what he says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. And the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and a strength of the children of Israel. God is going to protect his children Israel. He's going he's gonna to save a remnant of his people, but there's going to come that valley of decision where the, where the nations are going to gather. It's going to be a time where God is going to shake this earth. And that's going to happen really at the battle of Armageddon. When he cried out, John heard these seven thunders utter their voices. It appears from the text here that these voices or their voices is speaking about seven distinct voices and not just one. Uh, And so the question arises, who are the voices? 
And what does John hear them say? Uh, Some have speculated that these voices that John is hearing uh, refers back to the four angels of chapter 4 that were there at the throne room. But that doesn't make sense to me because then where are the other three? some have also thought the seven angels of Revelation uh, chapter 8 it says that when he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw seven angels stand before God. It's possible it could be these seven angels that are uh, the voices that, are, that John is hearing. Also in Revelation 15.1, we're going to read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And so these seven angels seem to be, and even the Jews themselves have always taught in their writings that there were seven angels that stood there at the throne. That's what they believe. And it's obvious from Scripture that there were There's these seven angels. It could be that these are the voices of these seven angels that are making these thunderings or these voices, excuse me, that he hears. In Revelation 4 or 5, John sees the in the heavenly scene, this throne, and we're told that from the throne proceeds lightnings, thunders, and then it says in voices, plural, voices coming forth. So it's very possible, I believe, that it's these seven angels there. Verse 4, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John says that I was about to write, I was about to write down what they were saying, but I heard a voice from heaven say to me, seal up the things which I, which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Very interesting, isn't it? Because we're reading the book of Revelation, which is a revelation of all these truths to us that are being unfolded and revealed. But in this particular case, with these particular voices and what is being said, This other voice comes out of heaven and tells John not to write the things that he heard. Do not write the things that you hear, but seal them up. Seal these things up. That raises some questions as to why. John, from the beginning of Revelation, was told by God to write the things that he heard. Write the things that he saw. But this little book that we're reading about here, there's something about the content of this book that I believe that God says it's not meant for you to know what's written in this book. And so that to me raises the question, then why did these voices utter what they uttered so that John could hear? But God says, but don't write it down and I want you to seal it up. Well, to me, it seems as if the Lord is saying, I'm putting it out there, but there's some things that are not for you to know. There's some things that are not for you to be able to comprehend. And you know what? Here's the thing with that. I'm okay with that. I don't know about you. There's a real danger for people sometimes that they have to have the answer to everything. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to the book of Revelation, people have really ran with that because they want to have an answer to every single detail that is lined out throughout the book of Revelation. And that's why we come up with a lot of these crazy interpretations that we have today in the book of Revelation. I say, if it doesn't specifically tell you what it is, then let it go and let God be God. And let him just, if he wants to conceal those things, there's a purpose in it. It's probably because I won't be able to really comprehend it anyway. I won't be able to figure it out. Or it might make me go, God, I wonder why you would do it this way. I don't know, but for whatever reason, he instructs John to seal it up. And not to write it. One commentator by the name of Wolverd wrote this. He said, This illustrates the principle that while God has revealed much, 
these, there are secrets which God has not seen fit to reveal to man at this time. Someday we will know those things, but for now we're not to know. Henry Morris wrote, and he cautions in this verse, let us not proceed as though all has been revealed. And I, I just say, you know what, I'm okay with that, God. I don't know what's written in the little book, and I don't know really what is being said by the voices or the thunderings. But whatever it is, it's in relationship to the judgments that are coming forth. And really, the possession that God has of this earth. I think that there are a lot of things as Christians that are not yet revealed. We don't know the day or the hour that God's coming back. He says, no one knows that. Uh, We see through glass darkly now, Paul wrote. Uh, It's not yet revealed what we shall be, but someday face to face we're going to be known. Even as he is not, we're going to be face to face and there's going to be things revealed to us someday when we're in heaven that we don't know now. And now we come to verse 5. And really this is now the angel's declaration. It's really a time that the angel is going to say there's no more delay. Uh, there's been a long delay with the nation of Israel through the years, hasn't there? God's grace and God's mercy being poured out upon a nation of people that has rejected him, turned from him, turned to idolatry, and God continues to pour out his mercy upon them and restore them and bring them back again. And we see, though, that now in the book of Revelation, the end of the age has come. The time, the day of the Lord is at hand. And God is now going to, without delay, bring these judgments upon this earth. And specifically, even against his people, Israel. Look what it says in verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. No longer any delay. That was the proclamation of this mighty angel as he stood there and roared like a lion what was about to come forth. Remember that we're still waiting for the last woe of those three woes. Two have passed, one more is still to come. And we still even have after that the vile or the bold judgments. John then sees this angel raise his hand. Uh, Some manuscripts read, raises his right hand, which means that the book or the little book would have been in his left hand and he would have had his right hand raised up towards heaven, up into heaven. He still has his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land as John sees this vision. And possibly uh, declaring that the nations, Jew and Gentile, that God's final judgments were about to commence. And that's really the proclamation of this mighty angel. In Daniel 12, the prophet Daniel prophesied of this coming day that we're reading about. The nation of Israel had a long history of grace and really seeming delays. Just think of all of Israel's history from the time they became a nation to current and all of the seemingly delays of God's judgment upon them. He told them that judgment would come. They went off into captivity on two occasions and they paid the price for their idolatry. But that final day of the Lord had not yet approached. It seemed that there was this delay We read in Daniel chapter 12, the last chapter of Daniel in his vision of this day of the Lord. It says this, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank 
and one on the other river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, a times, and a half time. How long is that? Three and a half years. What time are we talking about? We're specifically talking about where we're at in Revelation chapter 10 right, right now. And then it it goes on to say, uh, and when the powers of the holy people, speaking about Israel, has been completely shattered. When God has completely shattered everything, when they're running in fear, when the desolation of abomination has been set in motion, and they're fleeing into the wilderness and going to Petra, and the Antichrist is basically chasing them to kill them and his armies, when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all of these things shall be finished. Daniel says, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time of the, uh, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, Where are we at? Middle of the tribulation. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise. And I love this part. and, And you, Daniel, will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. It won't be in your day, Daniel. But here's the things to look for. Blessed are those that make it to that 1,035 days. And we talked about that 75-day period that's going to follow the seven-year tribulation period. That 75-day period before the millennial reign. The Lord is, Daniel is prophesying, blessed are those that make it. To that time, because if you make it through that time, then you're going to be going into the millennial reign of Christ. Otherwise, you've been wiped out during the tribulation period. Look at um, verse seven. But in but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. In the Days of the sounding of the seventh angel. We haven't got there yet. When he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. God prophesied of these days. He told of these coming judgments to his own people, Israel. We read in the book of Amos. It says that if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God used Amos. God used Joel. God used all these prophets in the Old Testament to prophesy of this coming day of the Lord. John sees that this seventh angel is going to be sounded and that the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. God told them that this was going to come to pass. And it is. Then John is given the bittersweet message. Look at verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book 
which is opened in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. You know, I started thinking of what John might have been experiencing as he saw this mighty angel with his legs stretched out onto the land and the sea. Michael the archangel, possibly. Could you put yourself in that place of going up to this mighty angel and saying, let me have the book? And wanting to take the book out of this mighty angel's hands, I would think that that would be a little bit intimidating of a place. It makes me wonder what was going through John's mind as he was instructed to do so. But what we see is that John is willing And not only is he willing, but he's obedient to what God is calling him to do. And then in verse 9, it says, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And the angel said to me, Take it, John, and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be also sweet as honey in your mouth. Bittersweet. And isn't that really how the Word of God is? It's a bittersweet book. It's full of all kinds of blessings and everything that we glean all the day and bask in. The blessings, the promises of God. But what about the judgments? What about the things that cause men's heart to run in fear? What about the things that people, when they hear them, they hate hearing the things of God. It's a bittersweet message to this world. This word eat that we see here in the Greek means to consume it, John, to devour it, swallow it. What does that speak to you when you think of the Word of God? How hungry are you for the Word of God and the things of God? How hungry are you for all, the whole counsel of God's Word, not just the parts that make you feel good but every bit of God's word that it's edifying to you it'll build you up it'll grow you how hungry are you for the bittersweet of God's word we find that throughout scripture that God reverse refers to his word really as food don't we he refers to it as milk he refers to it as meat and it's our responsibility. We should be desiring and, want and desiring to consume it. He tells John to take this little book, eat it, take it in. And there was no reluctance on his part to do that. There shouldn't be any reluctance on our part to want all of God's word. Then I took the book, John says, the little book, out of the hand of the angel's hand, and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. You know, we have been given this bittersweet message Just as John was given really the same, we have been given this. We have the message to take to this world. Not everyone is going to receive it like honey. There's some people that will think of it as just bitter poison. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to have anything. But, you know, we're called to go proclaim that. Whether people were here or whether they won't hear is what it was said to Ezekiel. They'll know that a prophet was amongst them. We're to go out and faithfully proclaim the word of God, share the gospel with people, whether they are going to receive it or not, because they will stand accountable to God with the message that they hear. What's interesting about John, and we only can get this from history, but it's said of John that he probably did not die there on the island of Patmos. History tells us that John uh, was one of the elders there in Ephesus. He was one of the key elders there in Ephesus and that he was actually uh, released from that island of Patmos, went back to the city of Ephesus 
and lived out the remainder of his days there in Ephesus, really proclaiming really what he was instructed to do is to take the gospel. He says to John, he says to me, you must prophesy again among many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And it doesn't seem right to me that if John died there on the island of Patmos, that there was much opportunity, though some have interpreted this as meaning the rest of the book of Revelation. But here's something interesting, and I'll finish with this. But this was written by really uh, one of the um, first known commentaries on the book of Revelation by a man by the name of Victorianus in A.D. 304. This is what he wrote. It says, um, he says that... um, in regards to Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, the verse we're on. He says this, because when John said these things, he was in the island of Patmos, condemned to labor of the minds of Caesar Domitian. There, therefore, he saw the apocalypse. And when grown old, he thought that he should at length receive his quintance by suffering. Domitian being killed, all of his judgments were discharged. In other words, this was now John's way to come off of the island. And John being dismissed from, excuse me, dismissed from the mines which were there on Patmos, thus subsequently delivered the same apocalypse which he had received from God, meaning that he had left, I can't even say that word, left that island and he went back, I believe, was released from that island and went back for the remainder of his days proclaiming the gospel. Isn't that incredible? And just think, we have the message, the same message that John was preaching then, we have that same bittersweet message to tell this world. I'll tell you that it's a sweet message for those that want to hear. And it's bitter for those that don't want to have anything to do with it. But we still are called to proclaim it. I'll close with reading 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul wrote this. Furthermore, when I come to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord... I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, so as, uh, as so many peddling the word of God, but as in, of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We have that fragrance of Christ. By the sheer fact that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can come in the midst of people at work and your neighbors and people you're around, and you can have the fragrance of Christ, and people are going to say, you know what, I want what you have. There's something about you that's different. There's something about you that is content. There's something about you that just shows hope to me. And, you know, you might not even recognize that. You might be thinking, you know what, I haven't been having a great week, but I'm still rejoicing in the Lord. And there's still people that are seeing something different in me. And there's people that are being drawn. And you know what, when those people see your life and then God gives you an opportunity to open your mouth for him, they'll listen. And God will give you opportunity. We just need to take those steps of faith and step out and realize that you are an aroma for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this prophecy, for this book of Revelation, Father, that has told us the end. 
And Lord, with this knowledge that we have, we have a responsibility. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit today. I pray that if we've come in with heavy hearts, that we would leave today with our load lightened. And Lord, that you would replace, Lord, that heaviness, Lord, with that sense of your spirit in our life, that power that we need, not only to follow you, but Lord, to be a witness for you. Go before us this week, Lord. Use us and let our life glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word. Thank you.